You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Everybody's talking about new black cinema, but there is one black director's film, Chameleon Street, that has faced serious resistance. It was written and directed by Wendell B. Harris, who also stars in the film. Harris is a first-time director. His film won critical raves, but he still can't find a major distributor. Some people call me Mr. Wonderful. Other people call me William Douglas Street, Jr. Born in a log cabin in the backwoods of Kentucky, young Douglas soon elevated himself from field hand to tiger, from tiger to reporter, and from reporter to doctor, from doctor to co-ed, from co-ed to attorney, from attorney to congressman. I meet somebody, I know within the first two minutes who they want me to be. I need some money. Make some money. I mean, I could sit here and make you think you're a genius for correctly analyzing this complex, exotic, notorious Negro. You know that the white man owns this world? A victim of 400 years of conditioning. Your credentials are just too amazing to believe. What would you concoct? Such a licentious, low-down lie. I wanted to get the money. Open your mouth. This is all just a vacation to you, isn't it? Prison, a vacation? People ask me if I regret what happened. I'm sure I regret it, but you can take my word for it. It's an unforgettable experience. I think, therefore I scan. I know not what I am. I am Chameleon Street. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Melville. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dan. Also joining us in the booth for the first time is Mr. Jay Jackson. Hey, how's it going? November 2021 continues with a look at Wendell B. Harris's Chameleon Street. After winning the Sundance Film Festival way back in 1990, the film took 
too long to come out theatrically and died a quick death after it did. It's the story of Douglas Street, played by Harris. He's a man who goes from installing burglar alarms to extorting a Detroit tiger to impersonating a doctor, student, lawyer, and more. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Chameleon Street and don't want it ruined, please turn off the podcast and come on back. We will still be here. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? Well, the first time I saw this film was around about a week ago um, when I was planning this podcast. And when I first saw it, I wasn't quite sure what to think, to be honest, if I'm being perfectly honest with you. And I've watched that a couple of times since. And I think it's the sort of film that needs to be rewatched. It's a very layered film. And part of it, and we'll, as we'll get into the discussion, is uh, is about the voiceover that goes on. So as well as the voiceover in the film itself, you're learning something. I think you can watch it on the one hand uh, as just um, uh, a straightforward enough film. But as soon as you start listening to the, the voiceover a few times, you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. And then that means something else to what I've just watched. So to answer your question, um wasn't entirely sure the first time I saw it. But the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it and think, yeah, this is quite a special film. And Jay, how about yourself? Uh, this is also my first time seeing it, um, just a couple of days ago. And then I rewatched it last night. It's a very interesting film. I am a huge fan of sort of these imposter films like Catch Me If You Can and things like that. I mean, they're just interesting human stories, right? And to see that sort of layered with issues of, you know, being a black man in America is a, completely different aspect that I absolutely loved about it. Right. So it's, it's a, you know, it's sort of like a double entendre sort of situation. So yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was super interesting. I agree. The voiceovers added, uh, this sort of disembodied <laughs> sort of perspective, uh, throughout the film, but I, I dug it. I, I just like, I thought the lead was so smooth and just like, it was a perfect, it was like he played the con man perfectly. I, I just, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, he plays a con man, but he's not, conniving about it i guess it almost feels like he falls into these situations yeah it's not premeditated really is it it's it's all just things happen yes as you're saying and, and he falls into them and he's in this new situation and he just gets on with it this was a relatively recent watch for me as well i really hadn't ever heard of this film uh it was uh friend of the show, Robert Hubbard, who turned me on to it. I think he asked about it forever ago. And then I want to say that Bill Ackerman actually requested this for his uh, Patreon reward. And I'm really glad that he did because, yeah, I would have gone completely unaware of this movie. It should have been a lot bigger. As I mentioned before, it won the Sundance Film Festival in 1990. That's back, and I don't want to besmirch Sundance, but that's back when Sundance really mattered, when there wasn't a big avenue for independent films. This was the year after Sex, Lies, and Videotype. People were waiting in anticipation of what's going to win Sundance this year, and then it usually turned into a much bigger thing. I mean, Sex, Lies, and Videotape put Steven Soderbergh on the map. He's still working today. He's one of the bigger directors that's out there, always experimenting, always doing very interesting things. I can really see this fitting well in the next year after Sex, Lies, and Videotape because it is very experimental. You guys are talking about the voiceover, and the voiceover is fantastic. Sometimes it tells us what we're watching. Sometimes it gives us the inner monologue of uh, the street character. Sometimes it comments on things. I really like the one where he says, uh, well, let him tell it, and then it goes into 
the story inside of the film. Sometimes it feels like it's present as in this is happening right now. And a lot of times it feels like this is way after the fact. And now he is narrating his, uh, his, his memoir, you know, his notorious Negro memoir, as he puts it. Technically, this is my first time watching it, preparing for the show, but the dialogue from this movie existed for me far before I saw the movie, which is, I, I didn't know this, but if you know, the rap group Black Star, which was uh, Tyler Quali and Most Def, they have a clip from this movie. I never knew what the clip was from. It's from Chameleon Street. The the song Brown Skin Lady, where he's talking about good hair in the beginning, that's from this. And so when the movie comes on, it's like the very first scene. I was like, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I was like, I know that. And it was like just kind of funny because I just never knew what movie that was from. Apparently, uh, it it lived on in infamy, at least um, in hip hop. So it's kind of dope. I'm sure there's probably a German word for that uh, feeling when you finally <laughs> hear a quote in context after you've heard it in a song forever. And yet yeah, such a strange feeling. It's like, well, why do I know this already? <laughs> I'm so familiar with this thing that I'm completely unfamiliar with. At first, I thought the narrative was very confusing. But then when I rewatched it last night, I was like, no, this is pretty straightforward. This goes through a very linear timeline. It just feels I guess it's because it's so episodic that it doesn't necessarily feel 100% connected. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. If it's very much, here's this little slice of life, we don't need to see every single piece of connecting material. We get, uh, I mean, there is the flashback to his first wife where he's talking about her before he meets this Gabrielle and then talks about how they had a money moon and money just plays such a major part in this film. Just this whole idea of, well, really, it's, you know, he doesn't understand women. He comes out and talks about that. And there's women, there's family, there's money, and there's the women usually just pushing on him to get money. Even his little girl is like, I need more toys. And it's like, he's always having to go out and hustle. And that's so much of where I think this imposter stuff is coming from is him trying to move up socially and economically so that he can afford all of the things in his life that his wife and his child really need and, and are pushing him to do. I mean, she's always just like, go out and make money. You know, that's her like goodbye for the day. Later in the film, he has that moment where he goes, wow, she didn't ask me to go make money today. And it felt like he had hit this sort of pinnacle. And at that time, then like everything comes crashing down once you, once you, once he's hit that point. Right. And what I would argue is, you know, the money aspect is obviously, you know, sort of straightforward and obvious, but I think it's also a stand in just for, especially in probably 89 is this idea of, you know, we're, we're, sort of just coming out of the Reagan era and things like that, right? So this idea of like money is everything, money, you know, we got to make it, got to make it, got to make it. And this idea of, especially for black folks, that that was going to be the the great liberator, right? You know, that that idea has changed considerably, especially in the black community. I can speak, you know, just as myself. It has changed considerably to more of an education is the way to, to get out. But for a while, it was just garner as much wealth because that was just the American way in the 80s. I feel like a lot of it is, yeah, I have to do these things by sort of by any means necessary. And that's why he finds himself on this path. 
again, the movie is incredibly layered because it's not just a con man. He's a black con man, but it's not just that he's a black con man. It's like, why are the, you know, what are the reasons? And it's, it's not just him pushing it forward or his family, which they're a part of it, but the society itself is just forcing like, you need to do this. You need to make it. You have to do it because otherwise you're going to just be like the rest of these, these bums in the beginning of the movie who don't accomplish anything. It's very interesting. I, I really dug this film a lot. Yeah, and I also just touching on that opening kind of scene, the first, uh, not the, not exactly the first scene because they're in the psychiatrist's office, but the scene where they're in the van. And Curtis is talking about 400 years of conditioning, even as conditioning is being conditioned. And is that kind of, I know it's a slightly different kind of conditioning he's talking about, but I think it kind of applies as well to the money situation that you're talking about, about, um, moving up in society, doesn't it? And, um, but also I just think about, you mentioned, how it's, uh, you know, the narrative can be seen as a bit disjointed perhaps, but it starts off very traditionally with two guys sitting in a van having a really fun chat, really. I think it's quite, a, I really like that opening and, um, setting the scene. And I kind of expected, I suppose, the film was going to continue like that. And then at some point it just goes off in these different directions, all becomes a little bit more, um, unusual. But also, also just talking about that, that scene as well. There's a lot going on in there. It talks about, um, 1978. It's, it's, that's when he's, he's setting the scene and talks about how weddings and Walkman are in. And I think the Walkman, of course, becomes, I don't want to go as far as say it's a character, but it certainly is always there. He's always got this Walkman in his ears all through the film. People ask me all the time, what are okay, you listening to? Yeah. I play the classics. Vivaldi, yeah. Hendrix, Debussy, yeah, right. Sly Stone, Sex Real Pistols, Ipso Facto. Uh, it helps relieve the boredom yeah. while I'm installing burglar alarms with Curtis. Uh, there's, I think, of course, a deeper meaning even to the, the Walkman and the fact he's always taking himself out of the situation that he's in and, and reality. So there's just so much incredible, really, amount going on in, in just that scene of two guys sitting in a van. Uh, and well done on him getting all that in there. Well, it even has the bet when he's talking about how when the one guy honks the horn, he's like, oh, I bet you that my dad is going to come and ask about this right off. And the guy's like, yeah, no, he's not going to say anything. And they bet $5 for it. And that's, again, this kind of he's got to make money. He's got to do this thing. He's got this this group of friends and they talk about this idea of this uh scheme with a check and how you put a pinprick in the check and they uh have that scene i love the way that he shoots the scene with the drug dealer where the guy's like in this it almost looks like a cast off set from ganja and hess and he's just like you come to me you say you want to make some money this is it this is your chance the question is what do you want to do uh, i don't know i mean speaking from a theoretical point of view the question is do I have to deal drugs in order to make money? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, do you want to philosophize about this, brother? Huh? Or do you want to make some money? Make some money, money. Now he even repeats that line over and over again because the editing in this film is is really brilliant as well and i just love how he's like you got to get the money the money and it echoes literally through there and then it'll come back later on in the film he'll replay that scene because he is just so desperate for that and then this whole idea of extorting and i want to be very careful when i say this because i find this very interesting he extorted the tiger detroit tiger willie horton or he was trying to anyway really extorting his wife and i found it fascinating that willie horton was a tiger 
But then there was the other Willie Horton, who was such a figure of political strife when it came to just the year before the 1988 election. It was this whole story of how there was a murderer. He was convicted and he got out. He was put out on parole and then he murdered again. And I think it took place in Massachusetts. So it became this major thing of the 88 election with Michael Dukakis being from Massachusetts. And that was just this, let's call it what it is. It was a black boogeyman for all of America and just George H.W. Bush just talking up and just like, hey, you know, Willie Horton, the specter of this, you know, horrific black man who's going to come and murder you in your beds. It was a horrible, horrible, some people call it a dog whistle, but I think it was a lot louder than that. And it's fascinating to me that both of these men were named Willie Horton and one kind of leads to the other. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. Yeah, no, that is 100% not by ha- uh, happenstance. <laughs> like, the second I saw it, I was like, Willie Horton, the short time, I was like, okay, yeah, got it. <laughs> like, that rung very loudly for me. Again, this idea of pushing against that sort of Bush-Reagan era in a hard critique. Like you said, it's not a dog whistle. We've seen some dog whistles in politics, but Willie Horton had was not it. <laughs> that was, a, I mean, it was as, about as plainly uh, spoken uh, racism as, as you can get. I appreciated that. Like this idea that he was using his first, like that we saw his first exploiting was something that was exploited, you know, in reality, exploited by white politicians to the detriment of black people, right? So here he is trying to kind of recycle that, that idea and go the other way. It, it's, he didn't trip and fall into these things. These were very purposeful things that he was putting forth. And it's like, if you know that history, it makes that film in that moment so much more powerful. You're, you know, it's like, Oh, he's trying to exploit a baseball player's wife. Like, no, yes, but there's way more here, right? So that to me, when filmmakers do things like that, and especially make you dig in and go, okay, what, you know, what is the deal with this? That to me shows a, a level of respect for the audience. It just shows a level of respect for storytelling, right? Like you can take these things and, you know, rip from the headlines, so to speak, and, um, and use them in different ways. I love what he's doing with the mixing of reality and fiction. You know, so much of this is, uh, based on the real Doug Street's life, you know, the whole idea of, Willie Horton, the tiger, him interviewing Paula McGee. I believe she was what a tennis player and that it's actually the real Paula McGee in there that he's got all of these real things. And then he'll mix them in with more fictionalized things like the, the scene at the bar where he's with Gabrielle and the real racist guy comes over and starts, um, I don't want to say hitting on Gabrielle because he basically wants to buy her. You're a woman. I, I, I want to buy your women, the little girl, your daughters. Sell them to me. Sell me your children. And that he's incredibly racist, though I did find out that Michelob is for white men. I had no idea about that, but kind of it checks out. I feel like that's pretty accurate. 
And that scene for me is, it's almost very Cyrano de Bergerac for me when he starts to defend himself in the only way that he can, which is with words. And it really kind of shows that he's not necessarily that powerful when it comes to a physical presence. He gets the shit kicked out of him. But when it comes to the words, he's able to disrobe this guy with his racist rhetoric. And I love what Wendell Harris is doing at that moment. I mean, we should say too, that Harris has an incredible voice. I absolutely love his voice. Great actor as well. And that he's very, I mean, people have compared this to Orson Welles because this is freshman film. He's writing, he's directing, he's starring. And I don't think that it's really pushing it too hard to say, yeah, this was a very Wellesian type of performance and that he has that stenorous baritone as well. You know, that's a very nasty word. But what's really, pardon the expression, fucked up is your grammar. Fucking let go. You can't say that. You know, the rules of grammar apply to profanity as well. The word fuck comes from the German root ficken, which means to strike. It's a verb and can be used in a variety of ways, both transitive and intransitive. For example, simple aggression. Fuck you. Or simple confusion. What the fuck is going on here? And then there's apathy. Who gives a fuck? And then there's ignorance, which is very appropriate for you. Marty, call the police. I can deal with this asshole. Yeah, yeah, sure. Defiance, the fuck you can. I ain't gonna take this shit from you. Authority, shut the fuck up. And you can say it four different ways. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. I see, these are all the things you could have said if you weren't so unbelievably coarse and crude and countrified. Aggressive. I said if that nose were mine, I'd have it amputated on the spot. Practically. How do you drink with such a nose? You must have had a cup made especially. Descriptive. Tis a rock, a crag, a cape. A cape? Say rather a peninsula. Inquisitive. What is that receptacle? A razor case or a portfolio? Kindly. Ah, do you love the little birds so much that when they come and sing to you, you give them this to perch on? Cautious. Take care. A weight like that might make you top-heavy. Eloquent. When it blows, the typhoon howls and the clouds darken. Dramatic. When it bleeds, the Red Sea. Simple. Uh, when do they unveil the monument? Military. Beware. A secret weapon. Enterprising. What a sign for some perfumer. Respectful. Uh, sir, I recognize in you a man of parts. A man of... Um, prominence or literary was this the nose that launched a thousand ships these my dear sir are things you might have said had you some tinge of letters or of wit to color your discourse but wit not so you never had an atom and of letters you need but three to write you down a s s um yeah the voice is uh, is incredible and um uh, and it's it's a joy almost whenever he whenever he starts his uh, his um his voiceovers really and just talking about his uh in, in well the, the, i don't know if the word int- intelligence is i mean i guess it's his intelligence it's it's it, what he brings to to these scenes like the the um the bar scene i mean he is always reading isn't he so wherever we see uh, wendell he's always reading whether he's trying to um uh, like when he's a doctor when he's when he disappears off to the bathroom with the book in his back pocket 
or when he's in the cell and he's got all the, the piles of books and at the end of it, this, he says, can I take these two books away with me? So he, he, he's always reading. And of course, when he's the French exchange student, he's always reading something. He's always learning because there's also a comment when he's talking about his second wife about how she reads just like him. So she's kind of then, he sort of views her almost as an equal, whereas his first wife, he very much, I think, thinks of her as beneath him. So he obviously, yes, so anyway, books keep coming up in this and, and him trying to, I suppose he's trying to better himself, but at the same time, he is, of course, trying to become somebody else in a very short space of time. So uh, yes, that is him trying to better himself, but he's also trying to to game the system a bit at the same time and be clever. So I really like too how he structures the narrative to pull the the rug out from under you. Becomes this doctor. He's got this amazing penciled in mustache. I absolutely love it. And they have him perform a hysterectomy. And afterwards, you know, I, I love the voiceover again here, where he is. It's almost like a Kuleshov effect, where he's talking about how this. Uh, uh, attending doctor is looking at him in all these different ways. You know, was it curiosity? Was it, uh, 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 concern? All of these things. And then he gets called into the doctor's office. No, he's not in trouble. Hey, congratulations. It's great to see this Harvard man do this procedure. Okay, great. And then he goes home and that's when the cops show up. And, and obviously a lot of time has passed in there because they did some sort of background check. They got the, a uh, woman who that he performed the hysterectomy on to press charges. Next thing you know, he's off to Jackson. And I like, again, there's not that connecting thing. We don't have to see all of those steps in between there to see, oh my God, this guy's a phony. Well, we got to talk to this woman. We got to get, pre- you know, the charges pressed. Okay. Now we have to have the trial. No, we just skip one from the other to the other and it just cuts down on this narrative and just moves it along so fast. And I like too that it is, it's not this constant upping of the game. It's not, okay, now I'm a doctor, now I'm a student, now I'm this, now I'm that. And it's not just like going up, up, up the ladder. Each time he goes up a little bit, he gets hit and goes back down, you know, and, and it's just basically like different avenues of him trying different things. It's not necessarily steady progression of, well, and then I did this and then I did this. There's always that moment where he gets knocked back down again and has to come back from that and try something else. A lot of times he falls into these things, right? You know, it's, like when he leaves prison, <laughs> leaves, uh, when he escapes prison, he ends up at Princeton, but it's not, he, he sort of kind of plans to be there, but then once he's there, it just kind of starts rolling. Okay. I guess this is what I'm doing. I guess I'm doing this masquerade thing. I guess I'm doing, yeah, I guess I'm doing the French thing. Like it's, he's, he's not like, okay, when I get to Princeton, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And so it, it, in a way, he feels more like, it, Ironically, he feels more like an actor falling into a role and you're watching him. You're like, wow, I just, I, I forgot who that was. And it's like, but he has forgotten who he is in, in, in a way. And then he kind of gets shaken out of it. And it's like, yeah, the cops are at the door, dude. He's <laughs> like, oh, that's right. I forgot. I'm not a real doctor, <laughs> you know, or the, or the Belgium student be like, you don't speak French. And he goes, Ah, uh, you got me. <laughs> I totally forgot. As I was BSing all of these other, um, these other French students who also were just playing along trying to be nice. And they also realized, like, what are you talking about? So he's shaken out of this, this fake reality. Um, but while he's in it, I think he, like, that's, that's sort of his, 
you know, his weird character fault is that when he's in it, he doesn't even realize in a way that he's he he's faking it, right? He's he's so involved in the character that he becomes a character. Because the fact that he pulled off a hysterectomy is insane. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? But it's just like he did it because he was so consumed with that character that he just was like, okay, I'm a doctor and I got to figure this out. And he does, you know, even while he's panicking. Yeah. That moment when he runs in the bathroom, like Jonathan was saying, and just like pulls out that medical book, looking it up before he goes, <laughs> it's like, wow. Okay. In real life, was it something like 33 hysterectomies he carried out when I, when I Googled it? It's like, what? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Incredible. Each one of these incidents, I think, is a lot longer than we're led to believe. So him, you know, working at, you know, the Human Rights Council, all of this stuff. It's just, yeah, it it was amazing what he was able to pull off. I'm very fortunate that being in Detroit, I get to look up all the stuff in the local papers. But uh, I also had no idea about this guy. I mean, he was doing this in my lifetime. You know, I, I can't remember the last time that he was caught, but I would have been... 10, 12 years old at the time. I thought I would have remembered the story of this, but no idea. Like, And then I even forgot because there's an opening that talks about how this was based on this person's life. And I was like, is that true? You know, it's, is it like the uh, Coen brothers saying that Fargo is based on a true story? I'm like, is this just bullshit that you're saying this is real? But no, it, it was the real deal. And I couldn't believe reading about the actual Doug Street just how much he got away with over the years. It was just wild. I mean, I think as well for you, and it'll be interesting to hear a little bit later on perhaps about about Detroit and about the area, how much is real and how much, you know, just seeing things filmed in that place at the time. So it'll be interesting to to hear what what it's like seeing it on screen because here in Edinburgh, we've got, uh, you know, Train Spotting, of course, is one of the great um, local films. Unlike most films, they, they show you one street like Princess Street and they cut to another street and it's miles away. And you're like, how did you even do that? Or it's just right, you know, it's too far away. So, yeah. He did a lot of shooting in Ann Arbor uh, that I could see because I'm not familiar with Flint. And, you know, there's so much of Detroit that I'm not sure looking at this street corner versus that street corner. But when he's at Princeton or Yale. He is walking down State Street in Ann Arbor a lot. And then the movie theater where he goes to see Beauty and the Beast is the State Theater where I've been many times. So that was kind of neat to see that. And then even to see like, oh, that used to be the Shaman Drum bookstore. And now and before that it was this bookstore. And it was kind of a little bit of a time capsule to see what these businesses were like way back in 89 or 88 when they shot it. So yeah, it was kind of cool to see that stuff. And I love, yeah, that when he goes up to, to Yale and he's got the, the woman that he used to know and it becomes this whole story. And I feel very dumb about this guys, but they keep saying TR. And even when later on, there's that, um, the the group that shows up at his house and they do the happy anniversary song and they say love TR. I know that TR somehow stands for the woman that he's there with at, at, uh, at Yale, but I can't figure out how TR matches up with her name. Cause she's got that unusual name, but it isn't TR whatsoever. No, Jonathan's shaking his head. <laughs> There's a lot to take in in this film. I think it's not a surprise if you miss some of it. <laughs> it really does need repeat viewings, I think, to, to get the full benefit. It totally does, yeah. 
yeah, this whole idea of him becoming French, I want to say that that kind of points a lot too to some of the stuff that he was inspired by, because it just feels like there's a lot of French new wave when it comes to this film, even to the idea of uh, spoilers, him being sold out by his wife at the end feels very much like Gene Seberg and John Pel- John Paul Belmondo in breathless, because I think she ends up kind of pointing the cops his way. It's been a long time since I've seen breathless, but, and he's, constantly putting things in there like Fantomas Judex and the shot of the cream going in the coffee reminded me of another Godard film. I think it's two or three things I know about her. So it just feels like this movie is very, very beholden to the French new wave, or it pays a lot of homage to the French new wave. And then especially when he becomes the beast from Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, it's just like, and, and man, what a costume. He looks amazing as the beast. Yeah, it's very very good. It's it's very good. I mean, even for in their reality is this like this is ball and it's just not a big deal. He again fully becomes this character to the point he is completely unrecognizable even to his 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 ex-wife or his current wife that he hasn't, you know, sort of hasn't seen in a while. So even she's just like, wow, who are you? You seem so charming and interesting. It's like, well, <laughs> turns out. So again, it's, it, to me, it's falling so deeply into these characters that he is almost not just unrecognizable to himself, but in that case, literally unrecognizable to people who are closest to him. I didn't get all the references. So Pepe Limofo is a, is, is a, is a twist on Pepe Limoco, which is a 1937 French film about a criminal on the, on the run from the police which I hadn't heard of, but there you go. So I suspect that's him referencing yet another film there. So, uh, yeah, and that costume is incredible. Yeah, that is, uh, and that's a really interesting scene because he does talk about being the, is he, does he say I'm happy or I'm finally happy? Something like that. And of course, it's the moment when he's not himself uh, in more ways than one because he's playing someone else, but also he's wearing this amazing costume. So, you're like, well, when is he ever? And that's a whole other discussion, isn't it? About when is, do we ever see the real, uh, real, real Doug here or not? And, um, I think we probably don't. <laughs> I think it's the very last moment where he looks into the camera. I mean, he's literally been sold out by his, his, his wife. He's being arrested. His life as he knows it is over. And it's, and it's, and it's weird because it's such a creepy, moment of that's exactly when they pause and and I feel like it is the most revealing part of him just because it's it's just like oh okay all the smooth nice guy stuff has kind of faded away and here is this guy who is just like kind of not a good dude you're a little creeped out by by that that freeze frame and that to me was like there he is all the bs that we've seen there's the real guy you know that's the the guy they've been really looking for the whole time and he kind of reveals himself at the very end that to me so but the rest of the film no <laughs> that is no idea who who he really is and, and like we talked about like the movie starts so like weirdly you know it it's normal for a second with that conversation then it gets really disjointed and then it kind of smooths itself out until so you're 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 thrown off a lot um and then once it sort of gets this kind of smoother narrative you're like oh, okay i think i know this person and then the, like you said rug gets pulled from under you the rug gets pulled from under you you're like okay where are we going <laughs> you know and then i feel like at the end it's like there's a the guy there there he is right there there's even a little um sort of dream sequence almost when he's uh 
before he gives the, does the hysterectomy when he's it, it takes he's doing like a, a train driver voiceover and you see the camera going through the corridors and was it the next stop hysterectomy and it's it's just oh you've thrown that in as well yeah what, what else are you going to give us so he eventually joins the detroit human rights commission and i love gabrielle's like oh you need to make this much money and he's like yeah, that's impossible. And so he ends up starting to sell his own blood to make extra money, which is something that in the very first scene with uh, in the van, sorry, not the first scene, but the second scene that he says, I'll never do that. I'll never sink that low. Now here he is. He goes out to lunch with these, I think it's three white guys and they start talking about tanning and he gives this whole thing about tanning and white people and just how it amazes me that whites avidly seek after all the accoutrements of black style. You pickle your bodies in gallons of tanning lotion. You broil your pale flesh brown in the tanning spas at great expense. And all the while maintaining such a marvelous contempt for black people. You wily Caucasians. To me, that feels like he's not actually saying that to them. It feels like he's just saying that to himself. So that almost not necessarily a dream sequence, but more of a fantasy is like, this is what I'm really thinking about you guys. And this is what I'd love to say to you, because I don't think that that lunch would have gone that well had he actually said that. No, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that is that was just sort of in his head, because then you can look at the facial expressions of those guys and they're just like a little weirded out but then it's kind of like oh yeah everything is fine like that's not how that conversation would have gone again it was one of those moments where he's he's the the mask is coming down a little bit right where he he's sitting at this lunch like you said and he and he's pretending to be like hey everything is cool you know he's literally watching them order drinks because he knows that that will sort of dull their personalities he orders a drink but he doesn't drink it right so he can kind of stay a little bit above them um but then you hear this judgment of them or he actually says it. But as a black person, I've also had that conversation like, why do you guys tan if you're like, like, if you know, like, if you are like bigoted, it's weird. It's a very strange thing in America, but he gives the audience that insight to, yeah, I'm sitting with these guys. Yeah, I'm pretending to be in their world. But just so you know, as a black man, this is still how I see them, right? Cause if it feels more like he is talking to the audience, so to speak. Uh, like he's talking past them to the audience than he is necessarily, you know, talking to, to these guys. So yeah, I, I love that scene. I, I thought it was, I thought it was cool because at first I was like, whoa, he's not really saying this. This is crazy. And then I was, I was kind of looking at their facial expressions. I was like, no, that is clearly this is just in his head, but the movie doesn't explicitly kick back and say like, no, this is definitely a dream sequence. So it kind of does lead you down one path or another. And I like too that. He clarifies how expensive tanning is, you know, that the guy's going to yeah. the one at Briarwood, which is the uh, big Ann Arbor mall around here. So it's like, okay, you guys, not only are you tanning, which is something that you could do just by sitting outside, but you're also spending a lot of money on it by going to, you know, this more upscale mall to do it there. Born in a log cabin in the backwoods of Kentucky, young Douglas soon elevated himself from field hand to tiger, from tiger to reporter, and from reporter to doctor, from doctor to co-ed, from co-ed to attorney, from attorney to congressman, from congressman to president. I could play president. 
it's hilarious because again, this is 1989. The guy who was just president was an actor, right? Like, and a lot of people would say he was just playing president. And here this guy's like, I could do it. If I can play doctor, I could play lawyer. Surely I could do this. And it, and it was just, I just love that. I was, I was like, ah, oh, this guy is like super nailing the moment in which he is in, right? Like he is acutely aware of the time in which he is making this film and not just a part of the time. He's actually like really diagnosing and looking at it uh, in real time, which I thought was incredible. And I'm not sure if you guys caught this, but there's actually a cameo from the mayor of Detroit in here. He pulls up in a car and gets out and talks to Doug for a little bit. It's right around the time where Doug thinks to himself, politics might be interesting. And then he kind of corrects himself and says, politics. And Coleman Young had been mayor of Detroit for decades at this point. And I think a lot of people knew it, but they still voted for him. He was as crooked as the dog's hind leg, but hey, he ran the city for all of these years. And so it was great for me, like, oh, hey, here's Coleman Young. And I want to say that right around the same time, you know, we'll hear in a little bit from uh, the DP on the film. He worked on um, Roger and Me. And I want to say that Coleman Young made a appearance in Roger and Me as well. So this was like very... It's a very interesting time in Michigan movie making because there wasn't a lot of stuff happening. And then all of a sudden, these two Michigan shot films and very specifically Flint shot films were both coming out right around the same time. Yeah, I was also wanting to ask you about the um, the Barber brothers or the Barber twins. Is that I did a bit of searching. Were they real or was that just for the film? Was that a real show? I think they were real. And I think the one was kind of more goofy and the one was more serious. And just the way that that, that those two scenes play out feels very much more like they're reenacting history than it was actually, you know, for the movie. It feels like maybe he took a lot of lines from that. And there was that weird line too, where he's talking about how, how hot the seat is. And I was like, yeah. okay. You know, what was that? Yeah. I mean, there's the hot seat thing, right? But it feels like, you know, is this something that you actually did on this show, maybe? But yeah, I, I'm kind of familiar familiar with them. They were more, I think, more Flint-based than Detroit-based. And even though Flint is only, I don't know, hour and a half north, it feels like another world sometimes. Yeah. And I'm, you have to forgive me. I'm just sort of uh, thinking, oh, it's all the same kind of place because it is so close whereas here in in the uk it's like someone saying something about london which is actually a whole other country from scotland so (laughs) um but you know it's fascinating just seeing all these real people like you were saying and although again as someone in the uk a lot of those references i mean of course it's now uh you know so much further in time away from that anyway but i don't know if we would have got a lot of them anyway because it's a it's from it's another country really so another world sometimes well, like the Paula McGee person, I'm like, I don't know who this is. And like, I read about her and I was like, I don't know who this person is. And then I had to look up because there, there are just to be fair, there sometimes are some clunky performances in this movie. The woman that plays, I can't remember Melinda or Melissa, the one who's reading the poetry. She's the one that does the background check and finds out that he actually wasn't from Time Magazine when he is interviewing Paula McGee and because he misspelled the word right <laughs> in the letter, <laughs> which is very surprising that Doug would misspell anything, but like she is very bad. And then there's a couple other times where I'm just like, Ugh, some of these lines could have been 
delivered better. I mean, it's great. I'm so glad that Doug and it feels like Gabrielle are pretty solid, but there are other times where it's like, oh man, some of, some of these line deliveries could be a little better. The poetry secretary was, uh, like you said, it was, it was, oof. I was like, okay, we can move on. Also, this is terrible poetry, which was on purpose. I mean, he even says that, but it was like, wow, this is, this is, uh, even for me, a person who, uh, should not, never write poetry. Even I am like baffled at how bad this is. <laughs> what did you guys think of the scene with him and his daughter where he slits his daughter's throat? Because I'm watching it and I'm like, please don't do that. You know, it's like, what are, what are we doing? But then when the scene is revealed, you know, spoilers that it's, um, it's nonsense, right? Like it's, it's fake blood and, you know, he was just playing around and the daughter is aware of this also, right? What it told me is nothing is real. Even the most serious things of possibly killing your own child to, you know, as he says, like to, you know, I forget the, the, the turn of phrase he uses, but it's something like to like up the stakes kind of thing with his wife. Even that isn't real. Believe only half of what you see, right? Because every time you're brought to the brink of like, oh my God, why are you doing this? It's like, ah, I was just playing with you. The wife is upset because not because he's toying around with like joking about killing his own daughter, but because she has to do laundry to clean up the fake blood, right? Which tells me that it has happened before. And she has this weird relationship with him that it's like, it's not even, hey, this is a mentally very damaging thing to do to a kid. Don't do that. It's, well, I have to do more work now. Thank you very much, right? So it's just like all of it is a farce, right? And like Jonathan said, like, do we ever meet the real Doug? And in this moment, it proves like yet again you don't. Even when he's given this sort of monologue, you know, wearing this – you know, holding this mask and having this knife, even that where he should be having this intimate moment with the audience – even that's bullshit. <laughs> so, so it's it's another you know rug pull basically, which was well done. I thought. Yeah, I was slightly taken in by it when he was doing it, and just thinking, where is this film going to go now? <laughs> this is this is crazy. And then immediately you find out it's some sort of. I'm watching it again. I'm trying to work out how they did it because I couldn't see anything coming out of the knife. But no, it was very well done. And yeah, back to the the wife being, I've got to wash this, and he's like, but that's that's the stuff that washes out easily. Doesn't matter. She's still got to wash it. And I find that there's a little bit of an echo from that to earlier in the film when it's his brother and his brother's like, oh, I've got to sneeze. And he sneezes into his cereal and all of that fake snot runs out. So I'm like, okay, this whole th- movie is just filled with pranks, you know, in, in different areas, whether it's him essentially pranking the authorities versus him pranking with his own daughter, his brother pranking him. I mean, yeah, you never know what's going on. And this movie keeps you off balance. And I can see some people maybe not liking this film because it does keep you off balance. I'm talking about how it moves so quickly in the narrative. But I I think if you give this movie a chance, you're going to really enjoy it. And I think, too, we've all seen this movie multiple times now. Watch it a few times because I think you get a lot more out of it, especially on the second time than you do on the first. Yeah, and I think that's why, partly why some of those reviews, those early reviews, were a little bit um, uh, not so positive, perhaps. Um, not the only reason, but but I do think, yes, if you are a critic and you're going to a cinema, I guess back then you would have had to go to the cinema to watch it, and you've got five films to watch that day, and this comes up. It's just, you just wouldn't quite know what was hitting you, I think, at the time. 
So I can kind of understand, although I don't, I think it's, it's very unfair, of course, looking back that this is the way it turned out, but I can understand the reasons in a way, some of the reasons why perhaps some critics were like, I just don't get it. And then they'll never get a chance to see it again because they've got their deadline for the paper. So I think the film is, uh, is unfortunate in that respect and that it, it, <laughs> it requires critics then to, to actually really take in what they're watching when a lot of time as someone who's written film reviews as I'm sure a few of us here have you just going to move on quite quickly but jumping ahead to where this film might end up if it does come to Blu-ray I think this I really hope this film has a new life because I think this is the this is a film that needs a commentary uh, where someone can actually maybe a couple one of them where someone says okay this is what happened in real life this is who this person is you don't recognize and then another commentary that is actually just talking more about the themes and uh, so yeah but fascinating that someone has created a film that is so is so multi-layered that even sort of 30 or so years down the line we're still trying to work out what he's meaning. And well, there was a DVD release. Oh, I want to say 2006 for this uh, from image entertainment. And it had a commentary. It was Armand white and another gentleman and Armand white, who actually is from Detroit is a real champion of this film. Though it was kind of funny because at one point they're talking about the Willie Horton stuff. They don't bring up Willie Horton in politics at all, but more the tiger Willie Horton. And the other gentleman on the commentary is like, was this real? I guess I should have read up about this. And I'm like, dude, do your homework before you do a commentary. <laughs> Please read about stuff, you know? But it was a good commentary overall. And they did do a lot of good comparisons to things like Native Son and The Invisible Man. And White had a lot of, uh, no relation, by the way. White had a very... um good look at some of those clips that are on tv when they're watching television in jail and he was pointing out some of the titles of some of those films there's one that's a joseph von sternberg film called shanghai gesture and so i watched that last night i don't see necessarily a huge comparison from one to the other other than that a lot of characters are pretending to be things that they're not but that's not necessarily in terms of uh impersonation it's more underworld figure type things like oh i'm pretending that i don't know who this person is but really i do and then i'll spring it on them at the very end of it it was a decent film very interesting seeing victor mature playing an arab gentleman and also a lot of i think fake chinese either that or cantonese which was weird because i don't think that a lot of people speak cantonese in shanghai but it did really capture that idea of multinationalism in Shanghai back when it was all these different quarters of, of folks. But there's also a mummy movie that they uh, look at. And then during that montage of clips, and I need to find out what movie this is from. There's one moment where I swear the uh, there's a female character going Wendell Wendell. And I'm like, how did you find that and get to use that in here? That's pretty cool. <laughs> I heard that as well. Yeah. I okay, good. What film that was, but I don't know. I'm glad it wasn't just me then. I was feeling a little crazy. Wendell, where are you? Wendell? No, and it's interesting as well. Those those clips are, are, are interesting, but also there are some little just shots sometimes that pop up off. Uh, you don't quite know what's going on. It's like the, you know, the, I can't think of the exact word, but the momentary shots just off of maybe uh, Doug 
doing something, but it's just for a split second. It's just you see it and then it's gone, and that happens a few times. And I'm th- and and but it's sometimes you maybe have looked looked away for a second, or you're not quite focusing, and you think, did that just happen? So he is dropping things in there subliminally. That's the word I'm thinking of. Subliminal, almost subliminal messages that pop up. But at least I thought I saw them. Maybe, maybe they're not there, and I'm just imagining it. But I wouldn't put it past him. Like that's interesting stuff too with the audio. Like at the very beginning, you hear these speeded up voices, and it was interesting. The, um, the I watch it with the captions on because that's how I roll. And each of those voices were listed as tormentor. So it was tormentor one, tormentor two, tormentor three, saying these things. And I'm just like, oh, okay, this is interesting. And that's when he's doing his poem about Chameleon Street, which it was a very nice way to start off the film. The next time I go back and watch it, I'll, I'll have to put the uh, the captions on. That's interesting. And yeah, to your point, Jonathan, this is going to get a Blu-ray release in 2022. There was a 4K restoration. I can't remember the name of the company these days. Uh, I want to say it was Craig Rogers, who's been on the show before. I want to say that he was working on it. I could be wrong, so please forgive me if that's the case. But for sure, there was a 4K restoration, and then they premiered it i want to say it anthology a few months ago and so now it's kind of touring around um so if you can see chameleon street at the theater definitely do but yes this will be out sometime in 2022 uh, as a blu-ray release so finally kind of getting its due because yeah like i said it it died a quick death which is really such a shame and then again came out on on dvd back in the early mid 2000s and i'm like Okay, I had, again, no idea that this movie even existed. I'm so glad that Robert Hubbard uh, and Bill Ackerman were talking about it. I really hope it gets, just like I was saying there about commentaries, and uh, there's just so much you could do with this to contextualize everything, and and it really deserves it. And much of, I would actually love to see a, 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 a um, restored version of this on the big screen, but as I've said multiple times, I just think actually home video and, and Blu-ray is, is a perfect place for it because we can just re- rewind or, or watch it again and think, what did I miss? And the fact that I've been happy to do that this week sort of two or three times kind of shows that, that it's there's something in, in this film, that it's not just a curio that deserves to go back on the shelf. It really does deserve to be seen by more people and there's and I'm sure we've got more to say about it as well. But but anyway, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'll be pre ordering that when it when it's when it goes up. I'd love to watch a, a 4K restore of this. I mean the version I had wasn't like the bet the, the version I saw wasn't like the best of the best audio and things like that. So sometimes in the dialogue you kind of miss things and you kind of have to go back and you know re-listen. So I'd love to hear it as crisp as possible. But I, I want to see like Jonathan, you said, you don't know if there's sort of these subliminal things that are being, you know, shown to you and stuff like that. I want to be able to go back and like really check out, like, I, I feel like there, you should watch it three times at least, right? The, your first time you watch it, second time you watch it with, you know, subtitles or, you know, uh, you know, comments on, and then the third time sort of watching it, but watching for the things in the background, watching for the, the things that are just not, the foreground narrative, because I think that adds a completely tertiary bit of information that I think you need, right? Like, again, if you're watching a film about a guy who is being not only dishonest to, to people he's close to, to the people who, who he's running the cons on, he is also being dishonest to the, to the audience watching. So 
it's like, cool, I'm I hear what you're saying, uh, Doug, but I'm gonna be looking past you to see what is actually going on. Because I think there is another there's sort of another film underneath which is giving a lot more clues as to what the reality is. Yeah, it's funny. We just talked about Lost Highway the other day and Fred's line about I like to remember things my own way. That's very much Doug Street, I think. And yeah, there's that dichotomy between what is Doug Street versus what is Wendell Harris? And I think you're right that Wendell Harris is telling us one story while Doug Street is telling us another. Though they're both the same person in front of the camera, it's very interesting to parse that out and see who is really who. And to your point about watching this on home video, being able to slow things down, even that uh, credit sequence with the frog and the scorpion story that is edited so intensely. Some of those things just flash by and we'll see like multiple people just bing, bang, boom, right through there. And who gets to speak, who doesn't get to speak sometimes as people that we've seen in the movies. I think it's almost all actors that are in the movie, but I think some of them play such minor parts that I was like, Oh, I don't remember this person. So that was very kind of cool to end it with that. And especially to end with that story, that whole, it's my nature thing yeah, i mean that is that's doug street that's his nature is to do this to deceive which is fantastic yeah and just talking just mentioned very briefly i made a note about things in the background there's that bit when the, in yale and in the library and he goes past the guy wearing the mask and he says hey what's this jason goes to yale and and the first time i saw it, i didn't even didn't register at all but that that when i watched it earlier i was like, oh there's a guy in a, in a sort of hockey mask or something sitting at reading books did they film on the day? And I can't believe a guy would be sitting in the library wearing a mask, but did that happen or did they make her wear a mask? Or I'd love to know. I just, cause it's interesting. And, and also just go back to the, the Blu-ray thing for a second. This film has never, as far as I can tell, never had a VHS or, or DVD release in the UK. So here it's even, I mean, you guys didn't really know about it, but over here it's even less known, I think. So, um, we didn't even have a chance to buy the DVD. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from cinematographer Daniel Noga. After that, we'll hear from writer, director, actor Wendell B. Harris, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hello, I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available. Anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? <laughs> 
How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1. The Quatermass Method Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. I'm very curious how you got into show business. I always wanted to be in some kind of show business. Uh, My first direction was music. I was playing around with films and music at the same time, starting around the age of 12 with music, more like 14 or 15 with film. I made a couple of little eight millimeters, one of them that ended up being featured in a magazine a long time ago called uh, Movie Magic. I was doing that and music I backed away from because I decided, and who knows rightly or wrongly, that I was not going to be the kind of writer you needed to be in order to um, transcend being some guy that went around playing in bars or something. I then went pretty full force towards movie making. And um, I mean, I always loved the magic that cinema creates a whole different world. And it's music and images and dialogue and all of those things together. I learned painting and drawing on a pretty decent level early in life. So art has been like a strong feature in my life, my whole life. The movie that tipped me towards trying to do that was 2001 A Space Odyssey. He took filmmaking in a different direction from uh, traditional stuff. The, The visuals were a lot more of the storytelling process and the dialogue was more incidental. And that grabbed me for some reason. And of course, the visuals were stunning. And I was lucky enough to see that film in a theater that was capable of projecting the 70 millimeter print. Not the ultra Panavision with the curved screen deal, but quite a huge image. And also the quality of the images because of the technique of held negative that uh, Kubrick used to uh, create the, the visual effects almost all on a single negative, which is not something that was done at the time. That and I have other favorite films that drew me deeper in one of them is the third man which was just an astounding piece of cinema and then you know later on i had other people that by the time i discovered other cameramen and directors i was already in it and that was you know i I, blade runner was a big film for me uh, in terms of visuals and drama and and ultimately i actually wanted to direct films I had a couple of screenplays I was hawking pretty big for a while. My timing was bad, however, in terms of when I actually was finally ready, was the business was changing. The opportunity to recover money shifted from videotapes to video disc. And then uh, when I was really on the brink of a deal, the economy collapsed. 
I mean, we were sitting in meetings and people were talking, yeah, okay, I think we can do this. And then the whole world went upside down. So I let go of that. Did you grow up around here in Michigan? Yes. So curious where you saw 2001 in 70 mil. The theater that used to be at the uh, Northland, they had the big screen there and uh, the the full uh, stereo soundtrack, too. So, yeah, that's where I saw it. So what were some of your early features like? Community Street was my first. How did you get involved? I don't know how I heard about it. That's the only part I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is how I got in was I went up to Flint and had an interview with Wendell. And uh, he told me what he wanted visually. And then he told me what the cameraman, whose name escapes me at the moment, gave him in a test shoot that they did. And it was clear from what he described that the guy really just didn't even listen to him. I said, well, the reason that you got that, I mean, I don't know what the guy's motivations were, but the reason you got that was he lit it like X, Y, and Z. He liked the fact that I, based on his description of the visuals, that I could tell him how it was lit. And I don't remember how I intuited that. I knew what was popular at the time in terms of lighting styles, who was dominant. And and I figured kind of like this guy was imitating those people. He was going for a more subtle, muted look. And Wendell was looking for something punchy and kind of contrasty. And so I said to him, well, Wendell, if you want that, this is how we have to do it. And based on the interview, he hired me. I think he looked at something I had too, but I don't remember for sure. You're completely self-taught on all this? No. I went to Wayne State University. They did not teach lighting there. That was self-taught. Wayne State University concentrated on elements of story and largely not really narrative filmmaking. I tailored my own program through the school. Once I got to a certain level, I did a film called The Price of Water which is a short that I did that ended up on public television a couple of times. They saw the film and they sort of said, well, what do you want to do? Since they didn't teach narrative filmmaking there, I went to the theater department and proposed to the chair of the department that I should be allowed to take theater directing classes so that I could get an idea about blocking and stuff like that. And the guy was really a sweetheart about it. The guy that was teaching it, he actually would take asides in the class and talk to me about, well, okay, so you don't have to move people forward on the stage to get focus. You can make a close-up, but let's talk about how we move people around the room and stuff like that. So I did that for myself. And then the lighting, it was, yes, self-taught. I studied what other cameramen who I liked did and picked through things to develop ideas about how I thought things should be done. I saw in other people that did things the way I thought they should be done. And then I, then I saw other people I learned new things from my favorite camera person, Jordan Cronenweth. He shot Blade Runner. He also shot Peggy Sue Got Married. In color cinematography, I don't think there was anybody like as brilliant as that guy. There's a famous scene in Peggy Sue Got Married where she's in the basement talking to her future husband. That was, uh, what was his name? Uh, Nicholas Cage. The entire scene was lit with one light that he bounced around the room with cards in specific spots. And then the, the key light on her face is light bouncing off of Cage's sweater. So she walks into the light. So it's lit partly by blocking, too. And I thought that was the most brilliant thing I'd ever seen. 
And there was a magazine at the time, American Cinematographer used to break down some scenes, how they were lit and stuff. And so I would read that and get ideas from that, too. So my lighting is self-taught. Did I read right that you were also involved in things like Thou Shalt Not Kill Except and Evil Dead 2? Yes. Thou Shalt Not Kill was being shot by a compatriot of mine. His lighting uh, at that point in his career was kind of weak. The guy who was in charge of special effects went to the director and said, look, we, we got to bring somebody in to light this big sequence, which was the murder sequence in the house. And so I came in and lit that for them. And I lit something else that they did, too. I can't remember. But I was there for a couple of days, lit those sequences, and that was it. And the other one, I was a special effects cinematographer. We um, did some visual effects. We were, they were done in an old, big old house in Pontiac. Uh, they had a huge space. Um, there was a dining room and a living room adjacent to each other. That uh, This was a mansion. So we had enough room to spread out. We had a uh, blue screen set up, and we had a uh, the car that descends into the time warp or whatever it is. Or I lit those sequences and some other ones with some crazy trees that snared somebody. I, I don't remember all the details of that. That's quite a long time ago. You talked about how Wendell wanted chameleon street to pop and i'm very curious how did you go about making sure that it had that right treatment for him in sequences where it could be reasonably motivated motivated stronger backlights i mean when somebody asks me for a look i always tempered a little bit by the surroundings my method of lighting is always motivated by the room even whenever i have a conversation with the director i don't usually talk about that i just try to find out what they think they're looking for. And I interpret that along with the location. And then I, where I can motivate things to make it look the way they're thinking about it. Stronger backlights, punchier keys, but that's really about it. For that time period, my ratio was a little bit, uh, between key and fill was a little bit stronger as well than people were doing at that point. And then the other thing I did also was I overexposed the negative, and then they pull it back in the print. But I was shooting at a stopover, anywhere from a half to a stopover. And then um, I'd send that information to the lab, and then they'd pull it down in the print. And what that gave you was a thicker negative, gave you richer colors and stuff. Interestingly, that particular film was noted sort of to not kind of be that way. At the time, you had 100 ASA or you had 400 ASA film. And I picked the 400 because I knew I was going to shoot it at 200, basically. And it gave me more latitude than the 100 would. And that is more flexibility because we were on location. We had no studio stuff. The only studio scenes were the jail cell, which we had built. I loved working in film emulsion, too. I mean, you once you understand how that works, it's a thing unto itself. One of the things about film is that you you expose for your dark areas, really. The highlights will carry unbelievably when you do uh, transfers to video. It's like having a little window that you can slide back and forth over the range of possibilities between dark and light. And like sometimes you have to artificially bring the highlights in to the range of the video or digital imaging, although that's probably passe information by now because digital's got a lot of range now. We never had dailies because we were shooting up in Flint, and the film had to be run down to Detroit and then processed. 
and then the prints would have to come back up. I was seeing stuff about every week. So I would shoot for days with just what I thought I was getting in my head. And I would get reports back, like the associate producer. I don't know if you're hip to Dan Lawton. Dan would run down with the film, and he would read the lab reports to me over the phone. The best one I ever got was the phone call I got after we did the law library. And he said, the guy didn't even do anything to it. He said he ran it straight through. And we were looking for what they called best light. Best light is, one light is when they just run, they turn on the printer and they set a light that they think is going to work and they just run everything through. Best light is they would scan a roll and then pick an average level. And then that particular sequence, we got it so that it came out perfect just on that one pass. I was pretty proud of that. So Dan's story is that when they first started the film, they had nobody line producing it. They needed some help. They were kind of a state of, I thought it was in chaos personally. And I said, look, I've got a guy, you know, that can help you bring him up here, give him a day. And if he doesn't fix everything up, send him home. Not only did he come up and sort everything out, but they didn't have a sound guy locked in yet. He ran sound too. So Dan was like Superman. He came in and and cleaned up all the mess. So then they hired him and put him uh, as line producer. I think I told him to bring him in as an AD. Once he was on the show, he found the first AD and a second AD and staffed the whole production side of the show. Yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. How long was the shoot? Do you remember? I think it was four weeks, four and a half weeks. It was truncated because the shoot broke. We broke it down. What happened was is that after Dan came in, I think we completed everything that was on the board. And he said, we need to shut down so I can organize everything. And so we shut down for, again, I don't remember how long, and started up again with a proper production staff. He made boards, strip boards, and all that stuff that hadn't been done. Because Wendell knew the filmmaking from the creative side. He's a brilliant guy, but he didn't know all the machinery because he'd never worked on that level before. So that was what Dan really did is he knew how the machine worked. And people actually, I don't even know all the things that get done by line producer, first assistant director, uh, second assistant director, production coordinator. I don't really know all the things that they do. I just know that if they're not there, my job is harder. As far as I remember, too, you shot some stuff for Roger and me. Was that right around the same time? We were up in Flint, and my first assistant cameraman, a fellow named Bruce Shermer, was on Roger and me. And he was working weekdays with our show, and then he was working on the weekends with Mike. And the way I remember it, Bruce was not sleeping enough, and he got sick. Mike Moore, who I had met a couple times in the past, basically said, I'm in the shitter here. I've got Casey Kasem, and I can't remember who else it was, coming, and I've got no cameraman because Bruce is sick. Would you please come? And I said, well, pay me and I'll come. So I filled in for Bruce, I don't know how many days, until he got back on his feet. And then uh, that was it. So, yeah, I did work on it. We had some interesting scenes. I don't know if they ended up in the movie because I can't remember. I saw the film. There was a laying of a wreath on one of the plants that GM shut down. and. I remember running through the streets with the camera because there were police there and stuff. It was kind of crazy. Overall, how was the experience of being on Chameleon Street? It was fun. I mean, movies, you know, it's like 
there were days when I was like ready to kill people. <laughs> and there were other days when I thought, God, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And Wendell particularly, I have to say, when I would mark the take and I'd hear action and Wendell would actually was a, a great actor and he cast pretty well around him. And I would just be watching a movie in the viewfinder till they say cut. That was a very wonderful experience. And, and of course, you'd hear cut and the spell would be broken and uh, you'd be back and there's all these people around with lights and shit. Uh, you can probably quote that if you want to leave out shit. Did you end up going to Park City with the film? I did not. And, and it's one of the, my big regrets. I didn't see the cut that they presented. And, and as a cameraman, you only really know about what's happened in that viewfinder. I had no idea what the film was really like. Even in other films that I worked on, you have no idea at that point in the process whether the thing's going to work. I mean, I, I thought the script was really good and stuff. But I have to say what happened was they said they were sending it to Sundance. And my impulsive reaction was like, oh, yeah, OK, there's all kinds of talented people and blah, blah, blah. And so I can't remember when I got a phone call or it must have been a phone call because I wasn't doing email then from somebody connected to the show. It might have even been Wendell. I don't I don't remember anymore. But he said we got into this festival. And I thought, well, God darn, our first movie, and you got in. That's about as far as that's going. Then I got some other message from somebody else that said that they're in the finals. And I thought, okay, you can't go any further than this. And 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 I had a, a baby at the time, too. And I was trying to work, you know, and, and I'd lost clients because the film just sucked up all my time for a while. And so when they told me they won, I just about, I can't say that. I was flabbergasted that, that that they took the prize. There was a lot of competition, I'm sure. I don't know who else was in the festival. Had I had some idea, I would have been there. But as, you know, that's ancient history. Plus, I'm a skier, too, so it would have been like a double fun. When was the first time that you ended up seeing the film put together? I can't remember if the film went to the festival before the premiere or after, so I, I can't answer that. I don't remember the dates of anything. The film did disappear after it played Sundance and won. Do you know what the story is with that? I think that people weren't ready for a black filmmaker to be that upfront. I've been thinking about this a lot very recently, trying to remember timing-wise where Spike Lee was. because he, This must have been before his stuff. Do the Right Thing, I think, came out in 89. So it was right around then. That was not his first film. Right. Yeah, he'd done She's Gotta Have It. and But She's Gotta Have It didn't really do anything. It got noticed critically, but it didn't do anything. And it also wasn't controversial. Chameleon Street, he poked some sore spots. And then when uh, Do the Right Thing, even more so. But um, I... I think that just uh, they weren't re ready for him. The only advantage Spike had is that she's got to have it was a feature, his first feature, and it proved that everybody should be paying attention. And so when he came out with the second one, you know, everybody was, he was already a, a thing. And so ready or not, here I come. And in Wendell's case, there was no, there was no opener. I mean, he'd won some fil film festival for some short film that I can't quite remember. I saw clips of it. He didn't have cachet when he came out with Chameleon Street. 
on some level that that gave some people permission to dismiss him. Not 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 real permission, but you know what I'm saying. An excuse. I mean, Spike already was somebody. He was not going to be ignored. And I think Wendell just didn't have that. And uh, it's a shame, really. Did the film end up doing anything for you, opening any doors? I think it did. I mean, no big ones, because I I think that's one of the reasons I regret not being in Park City. Uh, I should have been in the eye of the storm, and I wasn't. You know how show business is. It's like there's it's like a passing train. You better jump on, or you're going to miss it. And so I don't think I it did as much for me as it could have if I'd been there. Because I'm reasonably good in a, those kind of situations if I, if I actually show up. And Wendell is a very charismatic. And I'm sure you've spoken with him, right? Not yet, just via email. I keep trying to nail him down for uh, a talk. It seems like after Chameleon Street, looking at your CV, there's a gap for a while until the next thing that you're listed as cinematographer on. What was going on in the meantime? A bunch of stuff that I entered myself fell off the, so they, they just leave the ones that they put in. I probably, probably about five or six things fell off, but most of my work for after Chameleon Street was uh, second unit or B or C camera. Some of that was because I didn't want to do another film and not be paid right. That's the indie life. I stayed away for a while. And then when uh, the incentives came to Michigan, which was much, much later, I started doing some a lot more stuff for a while. But um, that's the big deal, is that I just didn't want to be in the indie scene. I wanted, wanted to make decent money. I mean, I eventually joined the union. After that, things I did work on paid a lot better. And then I did teach for a minute, but that was basically only during the film incentives, which is ironic because that's when I'm starting to get a lot more work. But the teaching was also very lucrative. It was a private school that they created that was basically they were taking carpenters and electricians who were out of work and teaching them how to apply those skills to the film business. What I was doing was not on the same level as the uh, grip and electric that they were teaching because you can't come in to be a cameraman, but you can come in to be a camera department PA and then work your way, you know, from through the assistant levels up to operator and stuff. So what I was teaching people to prepare to get in that department and be the guy that they wanted or the gal that they wanted. And like I said, that was pretty lucrative for a minute. So I did that. I find it interesting that one of your earliest films, you were working with Josh Becker, and then you got to work with him again on Warpath. What was that, last year or the year before? The year before. And um, I did another small one with him before that called um, Morning, Noon, and Night. Very, very, very dark comedic film. That was done on digital media. I can't remember what we used exactly. It was, what? let's see, it was a red dragon, a red dragon. And then we did um, Warpath and Super 16. And actually, some of that was kind of pretty, too. I was particularly happy with the shootout scene from the cabin. I pushed the film to pretty much to its limits there in contrast. We got some pretty good-looking images. Uh, yeah, I love Josh. So what are you working on these days? Sailing and my, my blues trio. Oh, that's fantastic. So you did get back to the music. Yes, I did. When pandemic hit, I basically said I'm not doing anything. And some of the stuff that I was doing just went away. 
you know, that is because it involved, I mean, I, I, there was this gig that I was doing for many years where I was supervising lighting for a multicam. Uh, it, there was like six cameras involved. So it was a pretty big lighting project every time we did it, but it involved a live studio audience. And so that went out the window. Other stuff, there were people doing some production, but I have a immune system issue. And so there were no vaccines in the beginning. And I said, I'm not working. I'm especially as much as I love movies is my favorite thing to do. There was no way I was sitting on a dolly with two people breathing in my face, you know, like the first assistant and et cetera, in order to uh, shoot movie style. And so I just said, no, I'm not doing anything. I was still able to sail some because it was outside and in the wind and people were far away from you. The band, I can't remember when that started up for me. My work had started to fall apart a little bit before pandemic. And I just said, I'm going to do this. I've always wanted to have my own band. I'd been in a couple bands many, many, many years ago. And uh, I just wanted to do it again. And we got to be good enough. We got our first blues bar gig. <laughs> Never got to play it because we the date was April 9th of the year they shut everything down. But we were playing halls and stuff like that. And, and somebody recorded it actually my ex-business partner came and shot us doing the gig believe it or not my drummer edited it and sent it to this guy from this blues bar and said he said come over we want you guys to come and play and um, we had our gig and then like i say we never got to the date before they closed the world down so now we're basically putting ourselves back together we we've been practicing again but it's a long way to show ready well i hope you manage to get some more gigs coming up it's looking like post Christmas time uh, that, that things might be sort of normal enough that that I'll feel comfortable going into a bar and playing. Mr. Noga, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Well, thank you for uh, your interest. I want to know a little bit more about you, and especially before you got into filmmaking, tell me a little bit more about your background. From what I understand, you went to Interlochen and Juilliard. That's right, but. I'm quick to say that my affinity for film did not begin with going to Interlochen and Juilliard. That began at the age of four in my father's medical office one afternoon when I saw James Cagney in Public Enemy. That's when I knew film was my destiny. How did you end up making your first film? And had you made things before Chameleon Street that we just haven't seen? Oh, yeah. I mean, my first film was made in 1965 when my father gave me an 8mm and a Super 8mm camera. And I began making films then. That's the beginning of my actual filmmaking. What were those early films like? They were usually stop-motion films that had a great monster because Ray Harryhausen was... Christ has always been my God, but Ray Harryhausen was second God. And uh, my uh, first animated stop-motion film was entitled Skull Island Revisited, starring King Kong and... Another film was Gorth, G-O-R-T-H, Gorth. And Gorth was a tentacled 
giant with tentacles for appendages. And in 67, the church in Flint, not the church that I was going to, but another church in Flint in 67, was it 60s? No. What what year did Bonnie and Clyde come out? I want to say 67 or 68. I, I think it was 67. The year Bonnie and Clyde came out, which you're too young to remember, but it totally swept over the entire world. And I was hired to shoot on Super 8 Millimeter, a parody of Bonnie and Clyde in 1967. And that was my fourth home production. That was exciting because they actually gave me a budget as opposed to, you know, me constantly bugging my dad for a couple of bucks to get a reel of Super 8 film or whatever. I had a budget for the first time with that Bonnie and Clyde movie. Well, how do you go from doing that into doing Chameleon Street? In 1979, my family and I formed an audio-video production studio in Flint, Michigan, called Prismatic Images. Although we did commercials and weddings and radio episodes and you know, covering different events for people, the entire point of the studio was to eventually start making feature films. And so after five years of you know, doing everything from weddings to lotto commercials and all of that, writing and directing all of that. In 1985, I read this article in the Detroit News about Doug Street and was immediately aware that this was the film that I've been looking for. Because all those years from 78 to 85, while I was doing weddings and commercials and lotto ads, I was also looking for material for a feature film project, one that would give me a chance to act, which had always been my game plan from the age of, well, like I said, I was indoctrinated into film at the age of four after watching James Cagney and Public Enemy. And then by the age of 10 and 11, I had decided that in order to act in a feature film, it would be extremely expedient for me to also write and direct it. Because even as a child, it was very clear to me that white people were in charge of filmmaking and they were not making many films that had anything to do with black people that you know were centered on black people that manifested an image that was beyond being an, an appendage so that was the goal very early for me to find a situation that would enable me to act write and direct and as you might imagine mike from a very early point. Orson Welles' example with Citizen Kane was like a beacon for me. So when I was formulating at 10 and 11 my life game plan, I often made plans in the ambient light of Citizen Kane. Well, Orson did it. 
Did you end up meeting Doug Street? After reading that article, like the next day I began contacting Doug, who at that particular moment was incarcerated in Upper State, Michigan. I immediately contacted him and arranged to meet him there and and videotape him. Pam Foltz, who, who ended up being continuity on Chameleon Street, Pam Foltz and I drove up to Kinross Correctional Facility in Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and interviewed Doug. That began a three-year interviewing process. I interviewed him extensively on video, audio tape. He wrote me letters. We talked on the phone. For three years, I interviewed Doug intensely. And I want to make that clear, Mike, because one thing that keeps on happening over the last 30 years, and I understand why, but I always am making a big effort to just make clear that Wendell did not make up Chameleon Street. You know, yes, yes, I wrote it and I directed it and I played him, but I did not, you know, sit back and make up make up a story and the plot and characters and everything in the film with one tiny exception, everything comes from Doug. And even that tiny exception is negligible. Doug has a genuine love of film, international film. And he is particularly fond of German film. And I made that fondness a love for French film instead of German film. And that was very purposeful because I realized that Doug has many amazing qualities, but there are also repellent qualities in Doug. And I chose French film because I was hoping it would give him a more romantic edge as opposed to German, which is, I mean, God bless the Germans, but it's it's a language that that hits the ear and translate as slightly violent, whereas French has a more romantic lilt. So that's why I had changed that one aspect. But all the rest is Doug. All the rest is Doug. Did you already know how to speak French? Well, my French teacher at Interlochen would tell you absolutely not. But I took French at Interlochen and I did make an attempt to learn the language. You know, I am not fluent in it, but I did have some experience with French. And, and you know, I was definitely entranced by French film. It was 1985. You find the story about... Doug Street, you're interviewing him for, what'd you say, three solid years? And then how do you go, all right, this is it. This is a story. I'm going to make this movie. Because that's a big leap. That three-year writing period was totally dictated by money. The fact is that it took three years to raise $1.5 million for the budget. And if we had succeeded in raising that money after one year, 
I was perfectly willing to start shooting that script that I had completed by the first year. And God, in his wisdom, let that money, you know, gathering period stretch on for three years. And I did not, you know, put the script on a shelf during that time. I was constantly working on it. But the actual, the actual season of writing that thing for 36 different drafts over a three-year period was dictated by raising the money. And, you know, I'm sure you know, Mike, that especially independent filmmaking, but all filmmaking is dictated to a large extent by how much money you have, you know, to, you know, to make those choices. And, And very often the money you have dictates, you know, the schedule, the choices you make, the actors, many of the actors that were initially investigated for the role of Gabrielle Street, the wife of Doug Street. Many of the actors were initially approached and they either said no or they asked for too much money. So we ended up with Angela Leslie. And, you know, Angela was from Detroit and she had done several films before Chameleon Street. And I am so glad that she she played the part, but choosing Angela was initially because all the people that I had initially written the role for, and that included Oprah Winfrey, that included Attila Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X, Kathy Tyson from Mona Lisa, you know, all of those were initially people who either said no or asked for too much money. For a hot minute, we thought that LaToya Jackson was going to play Gabrielle, but her father, Joseph Jackson, he just asked for way too much money. I believe it. (laughs) It was pretty predatory. We needed Gabrielle for like 40 days of shooting, and he wanted to charge $10,000 for every five days. So, you know, that didn't work. Were your crew, were they already people that you had been working with? Only a few. It was very important, Mike, that Chameleon Street be shot in 35 millimeter. And believe me, I had a lot of people in the early days, in 85, 86, 87. A lot of people came to me and said, you know, Wendell, this $1.5 million you're aiming for would be a lot lower if you would just agree to shoot the film in either 16 millimeter or super 16. And one thing that was a beacon for me from, from the moment that I read that article, I was determined that Chameleon Street would be shot in 35 millimeter. I was also curious as far as how the fundraising went. I mean, sometimes people have to do the strangest things to raise money for their first film. And I'm curious how you went about that. Yeah. Well, the curious thing that I had to do for three years was accompanied by the executive producer, my mother, Helen B. Harris. We had, it felt like a hundred. I've always said it was around a hundred. Maybe it was closer to 70, but. We had between 70 and 100 meetings with potential investors for those three years. 
And as you might imagine, you know, 90% of them said no. The experience of all those meetings with potential investors, that experience, I've always said, was like scraping dried blood off the sidewalk with a butter knife. I'm sure you're also aware that filmmaking is the most complex and expensive art form on the planet. So when you're talking about film, and you know, a lot of people come to me, have come to me over the years, talking about, you know, everybody's got an idea for a film, and they're always good ideas too. But very quickly, I always begin talking about, okay, where's the budget going to come from? You've got to get the money. Now, did you end up shooting everything in Flint? About 80% was shot in Flint, and then we shot the other 20% in Ann Arbor and Detroit. So was it a fully Michigan-based crew? Yeah, and that crew was essentially imported to Flint from Detroit because, as I said, we had to shoot a 35-millimeter film. There was not in Flint in 1984. Six, seven, or even 2021, there was not a 35 millimeter venue to use. There were not people who had experience shooting features in Flint. So, although we, you know, we did have crew members from Flint, 80% of the crew came from Detroit. So, how was that for you to be writing, directing, and now starring? in this film, I mean, it must have just worn you ragged doing it. After spending three years raising the money and writing the film, I assure you, man, from November 87 until April 88, those months were an absolute joy. Were you just shooting on weekends or how was that? Why was the shoot six months? We had a hiatus for two or three weeks in the middle of February. But why? That's how long it took. And no, we definitely did not, you know, relegate shooting to weekends. We were shooting Monday through Saturday. Did things come together for you the way that you had them pictured in your head? I often say that 98% of what you see in the film is exactly the way I wrote it and, you know, planned it. We had the film storyboarded by a young lady uh, named Ingrid Schmidt. She did the storyboarding. Yeah, I would say if you get 98% of what you planned, it's pretty much as good as 100%. What kind of things would you have done differently? There was a seven-minute dream sequence that opened the film, which at the last minute, I was persuaded by... Alexander Kogan, the head of films around the world, who was our initial distributor. And also, Alex put in $50,000 investment. And he was extremely adamant that we cut the dream sequence, which began the film, which I acquiesced to ultimately. And if I had it all to do over again, I would leave that dream sequence in. Well, you know, my next question has to be, what was in that dream sequence? The dream sequence was 
a dream he had, Doug had, where he is taking part in a TV show called What's My Crime? Question mark. And all the contestants are on stage, five contestants, among them Doug, and each one is strapped into an electric chair. And they are each answering questions from a moderator. And that's what the dream sequence is fundamentally about. What's my crime? How long does it take to edit? And when do you submit it to Sundance? All of 1988 was spent editing Chameleon Street. The script that was shot was 212 pages. That is as long as Lawrence of Arabia. So over that year of editing, you know, getting it down to 94 minutes was, as the French say, de rigueur. That's, I'm just amazed that you had that much. No wonder it took you that long to shoot. That makes a lot more sense now. It was a very, very long film. I've often said that we shot enough for two films. And I am glad that I shot all that because there were, as you might imagine, you know, there were several scenes that played out in two or three or four minutes that ended up being 30 seconds. Ultimately, all of that material became a strength in the editing process. I mean, hey, David O. Selznick took four months to edit Gone with the Wind. Chameleon Street is 12, 13 months. And as you say, that long period is connected to the fact that it was a three-hour film. What was the process of getting into Sundance like? Getting into Sundance was not a difficult process. When you ask that question, my mind immediately goes to the Cannes Film Festival because we were laboring so, so hard to get an edit together in time to make the 1989 Cannes Film Festival. And we didn't succeed, but we sent in an edit that was unfinished. We didn't have the opticals finished and and the soundtrack was not complete. Anyway, we got turned down. But by the time we entered Sundance, the film was complete. I'm about to say we sailed through that process. I'm trying to think if there were any obstacles or impediments to Sundance, that process. And I don't think that there was. You know, the only problem that we had with any festival other than the Cannes Festival, which, like I said, was not the finished edit. The only other problem we had was Telluride. Telluride is the only one that turned us down. Beside Cannes, Telluride was very, I don't want to say snooty, but they were quite dismissive. But but everybody else was cordial, at least. What was that experience like showing at Sundance, and how was the film received? The experience of showing the film at Sundance was G-L-O-R-I-O-U-S, glorious. And I have nothing but 
extremely wonderful memories of that experience. You know, it's uh, it's funny, Mike, because like 10 years after we won or maybe 15 years after, I, I don't know, it was in 2009 when Chameleon Street was entered into the Sundance UCLA archives along with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And they brought me back to Sundance in 2009 for that ceremony. You know, I brought photographs of all the people at Sundance in 1990 who had been so excited about Chameleon Street and they all worked for Robert Redford and they had been so wonderful. And I brought those photographs back in 2009 to see if any of those people were still there and they were all gone. Nobody knew who those people were or how to get in contact with them. They had all passed on to uh, not death, but, you know, passed on to different venues and nobody knew who they were. Time passes, Mike, and situations change. But I had a glorious, glorious, glorious time there. I'll never forget the night after we won, going back to our chalet and receiving a bottle of Dom Perignon from Alan J. Pakula, who was very, very kind and supportive. And I didn't actually meet him. He sent the bottle of champagne. But, you know, when that happened not just the bottle of champagne from Alan J. Bakula, but winning the award, all the excitement there, meeting Steven Soderbergh, Armin White. I thought that that all meant Hollywood was in love with me. I thought that that meant Hollywood wanted to work with me. And that's why I proceeded to move out there for three years. But Unlike Sally Fields' experience, you really like me. Unlike that, I was not loved or liked in Hollywood. You hate me. You really hate me. When did you find out that horrible truth? After about a year and a half. The experience of Hollywood is meetings. Meeting after meeting after meeting. After, that's what Hollywood really is. Meetings. And after a year and a half of meetings... At one of the meetings one day, somebody told me, and I forget where it was and who it was that told me, it might have been Elisa Rothstein told me that there was a joke going around in Hollywood. Want to hear it, Wendell? Yeah, sure. Well, the joke is this. You know, at the time, Mike, in 1990, 91, there were a lot of black filmmakers getting great deals in Hollywood. And now people refer to it as a kind of renaissance. And I was told, I think by Elisa, Elisa Rothstein, that there was a joke going around in Hollywood, which went like this. All you have to be to get a great directing deal in Hollywood is black, male, and not Wendell Harris. That kind of gave me an indication that Maybe I was not in friendly territory. I had read that you have been working on a film. It's either Arbiter Roswell or Negropolis. Yes, Arbiter Roswell. How is that going? 
That's going well, actually. I'm I'm working on a podcast version at the moment. I changed the title from Arbiter Roswell to Yeshua versus Frankenstein in 3D. Arbiter Roswell is a title which is very misleading because, you know, when people hear that title, they think they're going to see another version of Independence Day or some movie about aliens. And and while the Roswell incident is definitely dealt with in this documentary, it is by no means the focal point and point of the movie. And so, yes, that project, which is a documentary that deals with the way media has been used since the Renaissance to manage the minds of the masses. You know, it, you know, it's funny, Mike, over the years I've been working on this project and people ask me, hey, what's the movie about? And I tell them it's about the overwhelming power of media. Everybody immediately understands and says, oh, yeah, great. That sounds really good. But if I ask them, do you think that media has any power over you? Do you think that media has had any influence over your opinions, your attitudes, your mindset? Mike, everybody says, no, everybody. I have never, in 20 years I've been working on this project, and I've never encountered anybody who thinks that the media has any influence on their behavior or their opinions or their mindset or attitudes. So I just thought I'd mention that. How has it been seeing Chameleon Street again, especially with audiences? I was not in Manhattan for the New New York Film Festival recently because I was undergoing vascular surgery. All that to say that I have not actually seen Chameleon Street with an audience since the film has been restored by Arbelos. Not yet. Mr. Harris, thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad that we're finally able to connect. Would you finally call me Wendell, please? And Mike, I've been looking forward to talking to you. All right, we are back and we are talking about Chameleon Street. And I did find some of the articles about this film to be particularly interesting, especially talking about how people were so upset about it winning Sundance that people didn't expect it to win. And so many people were pulling for Whit Stillman's Metropolitan. And that Metropolitan ends up getting a distribution deal right away, whereas Chameleon Street just kind of went away for a while and really didn't come back out theatrically almost too long. You know, you like I was saying earlier, you expect like, okay, this won the prize. Everybody's anticipating it coming out. And then if it takes a year for it to finally hit distribution, even six months, what is this movie? You know, our, our memories are short, right? But there's what Stillman's Metropolitan coming out. And I'm sorry, what Stillman is like the whitest filmmaker possible and like Metropolitan and his films. It's just like, I am tired of hearing just these white folks complaining like crazy. So talk about the polar opposite of Chameleon Street. So it just boggles the mind that 
that was the film people thought were going to win and got really upset when this one did. What Jane Austen novels have you read? None. I don't read novels. I prefer good literary criticism. That way you get both the novelist's idea as well as the critic's thinking. With fiction, I can never forget that none of it ever really happened, but it's all just made up by the author. Maybe that's that's the point, is someone said, hey, we've seen enough of these type of films. And it's funny because, ironically, that hasn't really stopped. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, the whole mumblecore movement would, is pretty much that, right? Like, okay, that's fine. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a place for those things, too, right? I do like the idea of circumventing the narrative, right? That these, you know, things like Metropolitan are supposed to win, right? But um, it's unfortunate that because it was supposed to win – this other, this other film that did win that, that is likely much more layered and much more interesting is immediately shuffled to the side. Um, and it's, it's kind of as if it didn't win anyway, as if it wasn't even at Sundance in, in a lot of ways. So ironically, that deals with what we, we see in the film, right? Is here's this film trying to, fight its way up the social ladder to be seen by all of these people. And it's, it's pushed out simply by the way society is created, right? It is, it is then forced to come back years later, you know, and do things that, you know, gain its popularity in unconventional means. And Doug Street is a guy who can't make it by conventional means because of the way society's ladder is set up. And so he makes it by any means necessary, you know, to quote Malcolm X, right? So it's just kind of ironic that 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 happened. But I wish I could say that I'm surprised, right? Like, but that is that is unfortunately the way especially a lot of indie black films um, have gone the way of like, you know, it's just, oh, this was really great. Cool. Let's never talk about it again. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then people are like, hey, 30 years from now, it's like, hey, did you know this movie existed? Yeah, it turns out. I, I, I wish I could say I'm, I'm shocked, but I'm not. Um, but maybe that's, that's sort of the film's, you know, legacy is that it does mirror exactly, um, what it went through in the film in, in a way. Reading some of those articles, um, one of them talked about the fact that the, the critics probably hadn't even watched it. So they were surprised because it was a film they hadn't even seen. And they're like, well, what, wh- whoa, where did this come from? Uh, we didn't even know it existed. They didn't even know it existed then. And it was one of the films they were meant to watch. So, so things have not changed much, uh, even today, right? When it finally did come out, as far as I know from reading these articles and listening to the commentary, it sounds like it kind of got lumped in and buried, uh, amongst what Armand White was calling hip hop films. So, Things like Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood, which are so different and really talking about younger generations and a lot of conflict. You know, again, it's economic conflict, a lot of it, but then also police and racism when it comes to the police as well. And there are police in Chameleon Street, but they feel a little, I don't know, adjacent to the story. It doesn't feel like he's got you know, the, the black cops that are, or the white cops that are constantly after him and hassling him. Like, yes, there is a lot of systemic racism that he's addressing in this, but it doesn't feel like it's that I'm going to get pulled over by the cops and get shot kind of thing. It's a totally different type of racism to me. This feels like more, again, the, the racism in the system than the racism that's out on the streets every single day. Apart from the scene where the guy is telling him about how Michelob's a white man's beer. You know, ironically, right? This is, that is the most 
obvious racism in the film, right? If you're just like turning it on, hitting play, not really paying attention to any of sort of the, the layered, uh, aspects of the film, the, the white guy coming up and say, Hey, uh, is your girlfriend a prostitute? Basically, I'd like to pay for her. That's, that's the most obvious. But yeah, I like it's weird to think that this film would be tied next to Boys in the Hood in Men's Society. Like those are wildly different films. Like 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 they don't even they don't even feel they're not even in the same genre, uh, honestly. Like they they really are not. And it and it's just to me that that is indicative of a lot of how black films are seen. They're all lumped together. It's like, "Oh, it's a hip-hop film." Why? <laughs> because the because the principal character is, is is black like is that your reason because that's a pretty bad reason um to think that so it's there's nothing about this that's quote unquote like a hood film right like as 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 we would call it like it's not it's it's very much a film about a guy who is trying yes money is his his motivator so to speak but there's no gang violence there's not like there there's none of there's none of that like to me, for someone to, to lump it into this shows that they didn't watch the film. They, they saw who the principal actors were and they were just like, ah, let's just dismiss it. Like that's, that's bizarre to me. Like there was nothing, and I've seen those other movies countless times. Like there was nothing about this movie. I was like, oh yeah, I could see the, the, the correlation. Like there is no <laughs> correlation whatsoever. So yeah, it's, it's bizarre, but that happens to black films and black t- television programming a lot. You know, Jonathan made the point of the critics saying, Hey, I hadn't even seen this, you know, but that's, I mean, we've seen that literally in the last, the last Oscar run. Like they're like, Oh, sorry. I hadn't even seen the five bloods. Sorry. I didn't realize Del, you know, Delroy Lindo was, was doing an amazing uh, job in that film. Like I didn't even see it. Why? It's on your list. <laughs> These are the movies you're supposed to watch. Um, so it's, and it's sad because. You know, it's not because those movies aren't quality or have something to say or are interesting or could be bad, right? It, it's none of that. It's just that they're not even given the time of day, which is, which is a problem. That's really bothersome. And it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. I mean, I suppose in a way, the start of it, we talked about how the start of it is quite different to the rest of it. And it feels like almost if they carried on in that, that vein with the, 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 the kind of, not a gang exactly, but him and his friends and the drug dealer guy or whoever he was saying, you know, get some money, money, money. I mean, if it had gone in that direction, maybe it would have been, it would have been a different film, of course. So it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't matter. But also it's kind of interesting that we also mentioned that Doug has his headphones and the music. Uh, so is it, there, <laughs> there kind of is always music in it, but you don't hear it. And, and maybe if that had been on the soundtrack, even I'm just kind of theorizing what, what could have maybe made this film, you know, made more people aware of it. If the, if the soundtrack had been slightly different and, and there'd been an album, uh, of the soundtrack, uh, and, and things, but hey, that's not the film we we're watching. So, uh, in a way it doesn't matter, but yeah, he started off in that direction, I suppose. Yes. What he's doing is illegal. But really, so much of it is breaking societal taboos by him moving upward when he shouldn't, quote unquote, move upward, that he has no right to move upward. I know some people compared it to Six Degrees of Separation with the whole idea of that character moving into this different echelon because he can pretend to be Sidney Poitier's son. But for me, Six Degrees is much more of a almost like a Pygmalion story because eventually you find that there's the white guy behind him that is teaching him how to live in this white world and speak more eloquently. Now this is the way you must speak. 
Hear my accent, hear my voice. Now you never say you're going horseback riding. You say you're going riding. Hmm. And don't say couch. Say sofa. And you, you say bottle of a bottle of beer. It's a bottle. I say bottle of beer. Bottle of beer. Bottle of beer. Bottle of beer. Bottle of beer, what? Bottle of beer. Bottle of beer. Personally, I fucking hate Six Degrees of Separation, at least the movie, because the movie felt so stage-bound. It felt like everyone was speaking to the back row, and I'm like, guys, you're in a movie. You don't have to do that. You don't. It's like that acting style in the film was a theatrical acting style rather than a movie acting style, which is very confusing to me because everybody in that movie is somebody and everybody's fucking terrific but i'm just like wow this is clunky as hell for me i was seeing street being more like a thomas ripley yes he doesn't kill anybody but ripley this whole idea of him moving through society kind of sociopathic but it's a compulsion for Ripley. And I think it's a very much compulsion for street to make these upward moves, trying to get something and trying to get someplace that he wants to be, even if he doesn't know where that final destination is. He doesn't know what that destination is. That, that is an interesting, like kind of a key point of it all, isn't it? It's like, where is he going? He doesn't know. We don't know. And that we don't really have an answer to that, but it is fascinating to watch him trying to work that out. Because we don't see it in the end, where, where he does end up, apart from probably back in jail. I wonder what happened next. Did he, and I, I could have got, of course, gone and had a, a, a Wikipedia of this and worked, tried to see, but, um, does he get out and, and does it again? Or is that the end of his, his journey? I don't know. I tried looking up street, tried to find where he is today. Last I heard, uh, 2016, he was sentenced to three years in federal pr- prison for identity theft and mail fraud. Imagine that. But I'm not sure, you know, if he served those three years and where he's at with that. I, like I said, I tried to track him down because I would have liked to have actually spoken to the man, but uh, unfortunately I was unable to, to find him. But yeah, I, I would love to know what he's up to today. He's going to be running for Congress. <laughs> this is, we'll, we'll see him, we'll see him pop up in 2024 somewhere. It's like, I know that guy. That guy's name seems familiar. He could play Congress. He, he, he could play a senator. That's fine. Especially these days. He's overqualified. Th- this film is in a lot of ways, um, such a great commentary for the, for the time, but it weirdly works for now, right? Like this idea of, you know, who would Doug Street be in the, in the era of like social media and where people are constantly making their lives what they want it to be versus what it really is. You know, when I'm, when I finished watching, I'm just like, he would be a shark, um, like a, a shark in a pond of guppies. Cause this guy was brilliant. Like he was absolutely brilliant. Like, and just to imagine somebody who could remake themselves every few years into someone completely different. And I, and I think that idea of putting someone like that in this era where people are so apt to push forth these personas that aren't really them or an incomplete version of them. It feels like that, like he saw, you know, um, the film saw that sort of coming, you know, years before. And, and it's just, it's just kind of interesting to, just to think about where, 
where that story could have gone, like in reality or in the film, if he had access to, you know, social media and all of these things. Like it would just be, be incredible. But yeah, I have to imagine this guy is not sitting on his laurels if he's out of prison. I, I can't imagine. He's probably cooking up what, what's the next thing. Maybe it's small scale, right? Cause he wasn't always just increasing and increasing like in the film, you know, or like you were saying about the film. He like, he'll get somewhere, get knocked down, you know, and then he finds a new thing to do. So, who knows, right? You find this guy in a you know Michelin star restaurant <laughs> as the chef. Who knows? He is a fascinating human story, right? Like that we have people in our society that can just adapt like that in ways that if you used your powers for good, <laughs> you could be incredible. But it's almost always used in this way, right? Which is like, how do I get over? And and he was born into a society that forced him to be that way. I could see him being a power caller in the sorry to bother you universe because, you know, Armand White talked about how Shanghai gesture would be a good double feature with this film with Chameleon Street. But I can really see and I, I did this last night. I watched Chameleon Street and then I watched Sorry to Bother You and this whole idea of passing and especially the way that Cassius Green uses the white voice and the characters that are trying to get ahead use white voice. I I was just like, yeah, yeah, this is, I mean, Doug street could do white voice or, or Wendell Harris could do a white voice very easily, I think, but man, oh man, I, I just saw so many amazing parallels. And especially you're talking about today, you know, this was 2018, but it feels like it resonates even louder three years later, talking about the disparity of wealth and the slave labor that they're doing through worry-free. And then, of course, seeing Arnie Hammer in the film now and knowing the weird shit that he was up to. (laughs) It's just like, wow. The movie hits even stronger now than I think it did when it came out. I wasn't personally a huge fan of it, but there are parts of it that I appreciated. I wanted that film to be, and that's, this is probably me not being fair to the film, right? Like I wanted that film to deal much more with the idea of what it took as a black person to make it right. And more focused on the sort of like code switching aspect, right? Cause I, I was like, I'm all in. This sounds amazing. And I love the trailer and I was like, okay, rock and roll. But it was more, felt more like a bait, bait and switch of, we're going to have more of a commentary on sort of, you know, capitalism versus socialism and stuff like that, which is fine. I, I love, I love those debates too, but I wanted it to be, I wanted it to kind of focus on that. And that's, that's me going in with that aspect. Um, but yeah, I can, I can 100% see the parallels there. Like you're absolutely right. And you're right. That, that aspect rings much louder, weirdly, only three years later. So yeah, you're absolutely correct. I also found it interesting that there are a couple times like when he wakes up with Tessa Thompson next to him and he starts speaking in the white voice and that um I think it's David Cross voice. And he's like, oh, I didn't even realize I was doing it. I was like, okay, is this going to, because that movie takes a lot of turn. As soon as the horse people show up, it's like, what the fuck am I watching? But there's a moment when he is speaking in the white voice and he's like, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that where I'm like, oh, man, is he going to just continue down this road and maybe not ever be able to come back? Like the white voice will take over him because there's the, you know, Mr. X or whatever, the guy that he works for with the eye patch and the awesome sideburns where I think he only speaks in his own voice 
just a couple lines, but for the rest of it, it is all Patton Oswald's voice. And I'm like, has he gone that far where he can no longer speak in his own voice? So this whole idea of what voice you speak in and when, I found that to be really fascinating. And I know a lot of people read Chameleon Street as a, a passing narrative it's a different type of passing because he's not really passing for white, but he's passing for something that he's not. He's passing for someone in an upper echelon compared to where he is economically. I found it to be a very interesting reading to be able to look at that film and then even, sorry to bother you, as these passing type narratives. I mean, obviously, it's not, what is it, imitation of life or anything, or even that new one that came out recently just called Passing. But there is some interesting ways to read this film. When you're talking about Saudi Arabia, I was trying to remember the name of the movie that has a very similar feel, which is the 90s movie called Living Large, if you've ever seen that, with T.C. With Carson, right? Like, and, it, and it's just that idea of you're faking it, you're faking it, you're faking it, and then you're, you, you get consumed by it, right? And that's, and a lot, a lot of this, um, not just sorry to bother you, um, but, you know, this film, a lot of a lot of his faking it, faking it, faking it, and then before he knows it, he's in a he's in an OR <laughs> doing a hysterectomy. It's like, oh, did I fake this too much? Like I, I feel like I, I went a little too far, but he fakes it until he makes it right. And but he's able to again, like by the cops or by his ex wife or whatever, is is shaken out of this reality. But that whole idea of faking it till you make it is literally something. Sometimes we have to teach like young black people, like, look, you're going to have to code switching is faking it till you make it. Like, let's get real. It, it kind of is. And you do it to an extent until you don't have to do it anymore. And it is a very dangerous thing of faking it so long or never coming out of that fake that you can lose your identity. You can lose who you truly are in order to make it in society. His character in this gets pulled out. Because of the way society was at the time, it's like, we're not going to allow you to stay in this position. But as time has gone on, you can, like the T.C. The Carter movie, like Carson movie, you can actually stay there too long. And if people are like, we can take advantage of you, you know, we can make money off of you, they will let you live in that world until you're broken. You could do not just a double feature, you could have like a marathon of these sort of like Chameleon Street, Living Large, you know, like all of these kind of films together of this, do you, you know, sorry to bother you, like, do you lose your identity the longer you stay in this sort of fake personality? And like, what does that, what does that really do to the man, right? Or the woman? That's kind of an interesting sort of character piece or a character study. Yeah, I would add to that that a couple other films to watch in that marathon would be uh, Lenny Henry and True Identity or uh, Whoopi Goldberg in The Associate. I mean, there are very few, more than I guess I realize, very few times where the passing is that much, you know, that you disguise yourself as a white person rather than, well, I guess it kind of goes back to that that whole idea, the old passing thing. But these are like very intense makeup jobs. Of course, it reminds me of Eddie Murphy when he was Mr. White on that SNL skit all those years ago. One of the best things ever made that was a close but what <laughs> we don't have to bother with these formalities do we mr white huh? <laughs> what a silly negro <laughs> just take what you want mr white pay us back any time or don't we don't care the idea of like 
we are infiltrating the white world. And even with Whoopi, not only is she a white person, but she's a white man and an older white man. Some people hate that movie. Some people hate a lot of Whoopi Goldberg films, but I really um, remember liking that. I don't think it's a great film, but I think it opened up some interesting conversations. And then you can watch Soul Man at the end and uh, <laughs> it go the other way, um, <laughs> which is an insane movie. But I sort of love it just because of how absurd it is. That idea of taking black people and putting them into white society and having them not be themselves and then make it with their same largely their same personality, but the voice changes, right? The skin tone changes or then the expectations change. But that same core person is still there, right? Like Douglas Street is a con man and everything else, but there is a real part of him in all of his cons, which is why it works, which is why he feels natural in them. But if he was a white guy, when he's a doctor is a perfect example. When he, when, when the guy thinks, oh, he's this Harvard guy and everything else, he stops realizing, like, in a way, he stops realizing he's black. He's just like, you're a Harvard man, the, the wounds will, the skin will part for itself for you and, and all sorts of stuff. So he's like, you're welcome at this table alongside me, right? He, he literally forgets all of the other parts of, of Doug that are seen in society, right? So it's, it's amazing how you can take these same characters and put them in a slightly different aspect, you know, whether it's them changing their skin tone or, you know, things like that. And all of a sudden you're completely acceptable. So it, it, it says, it says a big thing, which is it's very much what they look like that has everything to do with how you see them and not in who they fundamentally are, right? Like, you know, like, like personality wise and things like that. It's not about that. It's actually you pigeonhole them because of their skin tone and, and if you if you eliminate that as as an excuse for that bigotry, it's amazing how much it goes away, right? It's 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 interesting. I you know I I almost kind of wanted to sit and watch this movie again right after we get done. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. It's a really fascinating film. Yeah, and I was just going to say the film. Uh, there were obviously a few films we could have paired this with. The one I went for last night was Catch Me If You Can, um, which of course is is a you know white the whitest of white men out there uh, doing all these some very similar things and hey it's just it's a lark it's just fun and he he does earn a lot of money and he does keep going up and up and it's all very easy and uh and it's a it's a it's a it's the first time i've seen it i think i've watched bits of it before but first time i watched it all the way through it's a bit too long whereas chameleon street is a nice 90 eight minutes i think something like that and this is two hours and 20 which is too long but it is fascinating just to see the the way that they did it and of course by the end of it well spoilers again for anyone who's not seen it but by the end of it the, the fbi want to team up with him and hey he's pals now with the policeman and and it's like yeah that's the white the white man there yeah frank abagnale's quote-unquote finale of his career is that he becomes a reasonable guy in society meanwhile douglas street is like dude i'm still doing male crimes in 2016 in my 70s right like if that's not telling i don't know what is the white guy gets away with it it's is so telling of what this world is yeah we don't even have to say it do we it's just it's just just yeah that's just the way it is yeah um, and he's a millionaire, or he was. I don't know if he's still alive. But whenever they made the film, he was—he's making millions. It said from from designing bank, design checks for for the yeah. Hey, well done, Frank. 
failing upward. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's definitely white society right there. All right. We are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Human beings are a disease and we are the cure. Now. So you're here to save the world. Everything you know about reality. So what do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. Everything you believe about the future. Buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy, because Kansas is going bye-bye. Will be a thing of the past. No one can be told what the Matrix is. Whoa. You have to see it for yourself. The Matrix. That's right. We're going to go into our grab bag month of December with a look at the Wachowski siblings, The Matrix. You've probably never heard of that movie before. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Jay and Jonathan. Jonathan, what is keeping you busy these days, sir? Well, at the moment, I'm writing another book. Uh, my my last book came out uh, early, well, late last year on Highlander, and, and I'm doing another one on Local Hero, uh, a local, well, it's a local film to me. I'm in Scotland, so... I'm working on that just now. And Jay, how about yourself? What's going on with you? Uh, what always keeps me busy, which is um, my podcast network, but um, specifically Black on Black Cinema, which is the show that I do, which is very similar to this show. Um, but it is just uh, a couple of black folks talking specifically about black films. So Chameleon Street like jumped out at me. I was like, we should totally do the show um, <laughs> in the future. Um, but yeah, we, you know, every other week we do a um, full episode. And then in the um, the off weeks, we pick a random topic about uh, sort of black society or our thoughts on, you know, stuff that's going on in the news that affects black people. But that's what generally keeps me pretty darn busy. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to advertise on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com for rates. If you want to join our Patreon community to get early access to every episode of the projection booth, please visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. 